All right. We'll grab our seats. We'll begin with a word of prayer. All right, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this catechism time. We pray you bless this 45 minutes to your glory and to our instruction. We pray you would be with the little ones, uh, all the grades, Lord. Watch over them, keep them. May their instruction in the faith be beneficial for a lifetime and for many generations to come and beyond. Uh, Lord, we pray it would be all to your glory. Bless us now, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we continue in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, if you would open up the Catechism to Lord's Day 2, Lord's Day 2. So uh, you can bring, you, can, you don't have to bring a Catechism, you can use the Catechism in the back of the Psalter Hymnal, uh, it has the more modern translation. Um, I wanted to point out before we begin that if you want your own catechism book, which I recommend, something that you can write in and, and keep with you and you know, kind of keep on your nightstand and, and study a little bit, um, we have these, which are, it's an older translation, but we, have, we can get them for free. Uh, actually, they cost us, I think, a dollar a piece, but we provide them for free. And, uh, but if you want to order one uh, that's the newer translation, um, it's a little more expensive for us to reproduce, but uh, you can get them. I have a couple of examples up here that you can look at after the class, and you can order them online um, to have something that's a little bit more hardbound and the, the newer translation if you prefer that. Um, but it's good to have your own copy so that you can go through the, the, uh, the catechism uh, systematically, regularly, and it, it just helps you be more familiar with it. So uh, we've talked a little bit about the background of the catechisms, published in 1563 in Heidelberg, Germany, beautiful city in the kind of central part of Germany today. Uh, I actually lived there for three years, a wonderful place, dear to my heart, and uh, famous old university there where Zacharias Ursinus taught, uh, leading reformed light on the continent of Europe uh, in the 16th century wrote several catechisms. His larger catechism, which is over 300 questions, is my favorite. It's one of the first works on covenant theology. And uh, the Heidelberg Catechism was written for children. And uh, that is what we use today as a confession for our churches. Uh, some have asked, why don't we use this larger catechism? I'd be all for that. But uh, part of the reason is that uh, this is very simple. It's very clear. That's why it's had so much success and has stood the test of time. Uh, it's very simple in its presentation of guilt, grace, and gratitude. And uh, it begins with comfort, as we've seen. And it goes through uh, its questions systematically, expositing the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. So you get so much in the Catechism. If you study this, and if you even go so far as to memorize a little bit, you will have a theological arsenal in your mind. And so I, I, I simply can't impress upon all of us enough uh, the, the value in studying the catechism and knowing it, and knowing it well. And I really want to encourage men. I know men here, are we like challenges, right? Uh, flew home from Colorado this week, sitting next to a guy who's 72, coming into Colorado to run the half Ironman. And we got to talking a little bit. And uh, men love challenges. So I'm challenging you, brothers, to start memorizing some. You have challenges, you love to do whatever it is, you know, CrossFit or memorize baseball stats or something. We just like challenges. I'm gonna get fit, that's all good, it's all good. Uh, bodily exercise profits a little, Paul says, a little. 
but there are other things that profit even more. And so when you have to get wheeled into an MRI and you think this might be the end and you can't bring anything with you, your phone, to read anything, what have you got up here? What can you take with you into the tube? And uh, try to be one of those guys that doesn't have to open up his hymnal and read the creed every Sunday. Know it. Learn, know the Ten Commandments. Know the Apostles. Know the Lord's Prayer. And, and know some of those catechism questions from the Heidelberg. Uh, make it a goal. And, uh, and if you say, well, I just I can't memorize. I'm not really good. Yes, you can memorize. God gave you a brain. You can memorize. You might not be gifted at it. You might not be brilliant. But you can memorize a little bit. A little bit. You'd be surprised at how many things we can memorize. I've told this story a bunch of times. I'll just tell it real quick since uh, making this exhortation to us. Good friend uh, who's with the Lord now uh, who uh, was a landscaper and a surfer his whole life. And uh, when he uh, was getting close to retirement, he got called to be an elder. And he had never graduated from college, barely graduated from high school, but a very successful businessman, very bright in many ways. And uh, we started going to a Reformed church together at the same time. Anyway, he, he told me, he goes, I've never memorized anything in my life. He goes, I'm just a dumb surfer. I can't memorize anything. And he made it his own goal to memorize Heidelberg Catechism question one. And he did it over, it took him several months. He just did it piece by piece. So instead of zoning out, you know, when he was in the shower or cutting the grass or doing things, he said, okay, I'm going to go over my catechism. Because memory is like a muscle. And so he went over little by little. And uh, long story short, he memorized catechism one. Uh, right after his retirement, he got diagnosed with brain cancer, huge tumor, size of a baseball in his head, and uh, had to go through all kinds of surgeries and MRIs. And he kept telling me, uh, that's all I got. I have that now. I, I memorized question one. And he could say it as he was going into the, uh, the MRI. And memorizing Scripture, of course, is also we want to do. But what the catechism does is it, it collects so much from Scripture, and it, and it summarizes so much of the Bible for us uh, that it, it can be very helpful, especially something like catechism question one. All right, we're on Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2. So if you'll turn there, questions 3, 4, and 5. Questions 3, 4, and 5. All right. So let's, uh, let's say these together. How, how do you come to know your misery? What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us in summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first, first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments hang all along. Can you live up to all this perfectly? Right. So uh, why is it picking up right here? Well, uh, what must we know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Can anybody tell me that without looking? What three things do we need to know to live and die in the joy of the comfort of the gospel? Bob? Uh-huh. 
There you go. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. So question two, if you remember, it says, what, what must I know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First. First, Seth. Second, Isaac. Yeah, without, this time without mumbling. What was it? <laughs> how I am redeemed uh, from all my sin and misery. And the third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. So guilt, grace, gratitude is what we need to know. So now you can see what the catechism is doing is the next question is saying, okay, how do you come to know your misery? If we need to know the greatness of our sin and misery, if that's one of the important things for us to live and die in the joy and comfort of the gospel, how do we come to know our misery? And it says, the law of God tells me. The law of God tells me. What does the law of God require of us? Well, to love God and to love neighbor perfectly. Now, this is one of the most important things in all of Christianity is to be able to distinguish between the law and the gospel. And if we don't know how to do this, we'll never be able to read the Bible correctly. And it's sad today that uh, this is so often um, misunderstood and confused in, uh, in, in you know, the broader Christian church today. So God, what, this, is, this is in some ways what the, what the Protestant Reformation was all about in the 16th century, was to distinguish between law and gospel. So what does the law say? The law says, do this and you shall live. The law is a command. Anytime you have a command in Scripture, an imperative, it's law. And uh, essentially it's saying, do this and you shall live. Gospel is different. Gospel is saying Christ has done it for you. Now, there's a big misconception today uh, in the evangelical world that the gospel is something that you need to hear one time in order to get saved. And then once you get saved, you don't need to hear the gospel anymore. You need to hear law. Um, that is ho- horrible. That is horrific. The, and, and eventually what ends up happening to Christians who are on a diet of almost all law each week is that you go one of two ways. You either become a Pharisee and self-righteous, saying, well, hey, I'm you know, doing what God requires of me. You know, I got saved. I, I got saved is always the terminology, I guess, for putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and now I'm, you know, doing what God commands of me, and I need to learn the rest of my life um, just law. And you become a Pharisee, thinking you are better than you are, uh, telling yourself you're better than you are. Or you go the other direction. You go into despair. You realize, I can't do it. I can't be the victorious Christian. You know, God tells me to, you know, to uh, have self-control. He tells me to, I mean, think about, the, okay, think about some of the commands we heard today from uh, 1 Peter. Okay, during the sermon. So we heard, uh, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. 
okay, we, we catch ourselves envying, don't we? You envy your neighbor. You envy other people. You envy your coworkers. Okay, that's sin. So what do you do with that? Oh, it's okay. It doesn't really matter. Okay, you went the hypocrisy route. Or, gosh, I'm horrible. Maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Ah, you go on the despair route. You go one of those two routes if all you're getting is law. The way we, what we need to hear is, again and again, the good news of who you are in Jesus Christ. This is as much for your sanctification as it is for your conversion. By hearing the good news of the gospel, that Christ has done it for us, this is what gives us the strength and the motivation to now go and do the things that God calls us to do. Not trying to achieve something, but rather doing it in gratitude because God has loved us and has saved us. But if we don't have the gospel each week and hearing about the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's as much for believers as non-believers, then how are we ever going to have the strength to do this? You can use a lot of analogies. One analogy, for example, is uh, that Mike Horton likes to use. is like a sailboat. If you've ever been on a nice sailboat, like a, a a state-of-the-art sailboat, you know that it has uh, all the sophisticated navigational equipment. It's incredible to me, you know, if, if you've been sailing at all, when you go down to the, the marina, or the, the harbor in San Diego, and, and uh, you get to go on one of these sailboats, how this huge structure, just, uh, it has all of these computers and navigational equipment that people didn't have in centuries past. And, you know, how did men sail across the ocean, no less, without a computer? And yet, uh, today, we have all of that. Um, however, if you know anything about a sailboat, most of them have just a tiny little motor that gets you out of the harbor, and then the idea is to put the motor away and to open up those sails. But if there's no wind, you don't go anywhere. On a nice windy day like today, uh, the harbor undoubtedly is filled with sailboats. You'll see the, the little white sails all over the place because the wind is pushing the boat along. The gospel is like the wind in the sails. It's what's pushing the boat along. The law is like all that navigational equipment. It tells you where you are. It lays down the, the lines. It tells you if you're actually going north or if you're going west. You can't fudge it. There's, it's, it's telling you what is objectively true. But this will not move you. Another analogy is, you know, this tells you where to go but it's the gospel that gives you the feet to move. So we need, it, we need both. But this is also showing us our sin and our misery. It's not only telling us the way in which we are to live, okay? Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Okay, he also says, he gives us a little more law here. I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul, keep your conduct among the unbelievers honorable. Uh, he, he has a lot of things here to say that are law, but it not only tells us how we are to live, it also exposes our sin. We realize that we haven't kept it perfectly. Uh, the, the reformers would sometimes talk about this as different uses of the law. We call that the first use of the law that in that we hear the law. Put away all envy, put away all slander, and you're like, oh gosh, 
done a little envying this week, done a little slander this week. And it, it convicts you. And what does it do? It drives you back to Jesus Christ. It drives you back to Jesus Christ, which is your only comfort and your hope. Your comfort and your hope is not how good you are. Your comfort and your hope is how good Jesus is. And hearing about how he is perfect for you is what brings us to our knees in love for him and then grateful obedience so that we say, yes, Lord, I don't want to. I know that's not right, and I don't want to do that. I struggle with envy or slander or malice or you know, these things that Peter's talking about. I don't want to do that. I need to put it away. And we all have besetting sins, don't we? We all have certain things that, that just seems to be that one or those two things that we really struggle with, whether it's anger or pride or lust or gossip. Every Christian has certain besetting sins that just don't seem to go away. They're like a squatter in a house that you can't evict. And uh, it's, you're trying to get the guy out, and he keeps climbing back in the window. And, uh, and it drives us back to Jesus Christ so that we find our hope and our comfort and our rest in him. But the first thing it does is it lays us flat. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. So I've always found this particular question kind of cute when, uh, you know, we have cute little girls and their ribbons and they're learning catechism. Sometimes they'll come into my study. The kids will come into the study and I'll give them candy if they can say a catechism question. And it always cracks me up when like a cute little girl, uh, you know, I'll say, can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor, you know. <laughs> It's like the way depravity is packaged sometimes, you know. It's so <laughs> unbelievable. So, so where do we find in Scripture these things to be true? Where do we find in Scripture, for example, um, I mean, to hate God and our neighbor? That's, that's pretty stark. If we say, hey, come on, I don't hate God. I never hated God. Does the Bible say that apart from Christ, we are God-haters? Does it actually say that? I love you're like, you're not saying yes or no. You're just buying whatever I'm telling you, aren't you? Come on, fight back, push back. Does the Bible say that apart from Christ, we hate God? Is there a verse that says that? And if so, where? Where can you find it in Scripture? I'll give you a hint, because you're like, oh, man, if he's going to be asking us questions, I'm not coming back next week. And I want you to come back. Heidelberg Catechism. It's patterned after which book of the Bible? Romans. So if we're in the guilt section on the catechism, where might we look in Romans? What's the guilt section of Romans? Chapters 1, 2, and 3, right? So in chapter 1, remember where God gives us that great di- diagnosis? of our sin. Um, Romans 1, 18. Romans 1, verses 1 through 17 is the introduction. And then beginning at verse 18 in chapter 1, going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, that lays out God's law and how it levels us, how none of us have kept it. And so the, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he's talking about the whole human race here. 
And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's, just, it's pretty long, but it's, it basically says we're, out, we're without excuse. It's why we sin. It's why all these things are awful. And he says that one of the things that uh, mankind is, apart from Christ, is a God-hater. So verse 29, they were filled with all, un- all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. There it is. Verse 30. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So so pick which one is you. Which sin? Which sin is you, Freddie? (laughs) You are a true Calvinist. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Yeah, Romans chapter 1. So, I mean, Romans chapter 1, verses 18, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. That's the guilt section of Romans. There's not gospel in there. There's no gospel in there. See, the word of God is either law or gospel. You can go to basically any text in the Bible, and it'll be law or gospel in one, one way or another. And we need to know how to distinguish that. Otherwise, we don't rightly divide the word of truth. And it's amazing today how, how you can go to so many churches today, packed with people, you know, and you, and you go to that church and you hear a sermon, it was all law. <laughs> okay, yeah, so get out there, try harder. Let's pray. And you walk out there, I heard nothing about Christ. And people have no clue. Like, oh, they're either, doing, they're either going the hypocrisy route or they're going the despair route but they're not going the growth route. We need the gospel to grow. So we need to hear the law. Don't get me wrong. We need to hear the law. But the law does what? It exposes our sin, drives us to Jesus Christ. And it tells us how we are to live as those who are in Jesus Christ. But this is the good news. This is not the good news. So think of it this way. Is it good news to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you go to Dora Ramirez right now, I said this last week, I'm going to say it again, okay? Don't worry, is there somebody at the door? Don't worry, it's all right, it's not ISIS. Uh, So imagine you go to Dora right now, and she's on her deathbed. And you say, Dora, I just got, the Lord put this verse on my heart. I want to bring it to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. I'd slap you. And if you're a woman, I'd get a woman to slap you. Because she doesn't need that burden now at the end of her life. You're laying on your deathbed. You know you haven't loved the Lord with all your heart. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. You haven't done that all perfectly. And so, yet... Can you guys, could you guys just like maybe ask them to just take the conversation a little further out? That'd be great. That's a, yeah. Just we don't we need the whole class to be hijacked, but we can just um, take the take it over there. Um, so we have to understand the difference. You know, when you go to Dora, you're going to bring her something like Romans. Go into Romans three, verse twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
you're going to say something like Romans 4, verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, these are gospel texts. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Dora needs. That's what you need each week to know that God is at peace with you. Because that's what encourages us now to go and do this. But apart from that gospel, apart from that gospel, the law only kills. The law slays, the gospel brings to life. And, and, and that's why every single sermon that gets preached, it needs to ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong, you're going to hear some sermons where it's the law because the text is the law. And you're going to hear the law. It's like, man, I'm getting killed by the law today. Yeah, because that's the text. However, even in that sermon, it ultimately needs to point us to Jesus Christ who fulfilled those things for us. Because let's go back to Peter again. Jesus had no malice. Jesus never envied. Jesus never slandered. Jesus was never a hypocrite. Jesus was never any of those things. And he's my hope. I'm looking to him to get into heaven. Not my level of obedience or my performance to the law. And this is Paul's whole point in Romans and in Galatians, is that the law was given to show that we need a Savior, one who kept the law in our place. Any questions on that? Okay, and let's go to the next Lord's Day. We'll just keep moving along. So Lord's Day 3. Well, I don't, know how, I don't know how you would preach gospel apart from law. That's like walking up to people saying, hey, you're cured of cancer, who don't have cancer. Yeah, yeah I, don't know how that would, I don't know how that would work. I mean, um, the gospel isn't good news apart from the law. So I, 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 don't believe that's even, I don't believe it's even possible. It's not even possible. It wouldn't be biblical, but it's not even possible. How can you announce good news without there being a need for the good news? And we've got to be clear here. Before, before the fall, there was no gospel. If Adam had obeyed, would the Son of God have been need, needed to come into this world? Of course not. Not at all. Or to put it another way, if you ever meet a righteous person, don't tell him the gospel. He doesn't need the gospel. He's already going to heaven. But the problem is, is that there, there are no righteous people in the world. You know, there's no truly innocent people. And I know we talk about innocent people you know, and you know, getting killed by somebody senselessly and that kind of thing. But the fact is nobody in the world is innocent before God. And because we all have sin. And that, that's what Paul's getting at. I mean, in Romans 3, you know, he goes on and on and on about how we, you know, we haven't kept the law. And then he says, you know, in chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He's, he's, these are all quotes from the Old Testament. He's strung together. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he, he sums it all up like this. 
now we know, chapter 3, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and look at the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law actually, the law condemns us because it shows us what God requires and that we haven't kept it. It shows us where those lines are that we've actually crossed. But it doesn't have the power to change the heart in itself. Again, it's, it's the navigational equipment on a boat. It's not the wind in the sails. Or another way, another analogy I've used, you know, the tiger at the zoo. Um, you go to the zoo, you see the Malaysian tiger, powerful creature. Um, that tiger is still a tiger. The being in the zoo has not changed the tiger's nature. If you throw a duck in there, the tiger's going to kill the duck. Uh, Isaac got to witness that one time, much to his delight. Uh, It's still a tiger. The walls around the exhibit can confine the tiger a little, and they expose the tiger for what it is to all of the guests to the zoo, but the walls in themselves are powerless to change the nature of the tiger into something else. It's not going to have the, you know, the, the nature of a tortoise now or something else. And that's very much like the law. And Paul even says this in Galatians, which is his other great treatise on the law and the gospel. Very powerful, very stark difference that he, contrast he makes between the law and the gospel. He says in Galatians chapter 3, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, it's not. You can't become righteous by keeping the law. You need someone who has kept it for you. And being clothed in his righteousness is what makes you acceptable to God. And that's what puts winds in our, wind in our sails. That's what gives us joy, knowing that we are accepted by God because of one who has kept the law in our place. So we need to hear about the law and the gospel. Another thing, too, ancient liturgies, they always had readings of law. You go to a modern church today, your garden variety, evangelical church, it almost always gets law gospel mixed up. Usually what you get is what Kim Middlebarger likes to call gospel. It's kind of a mixture of the two, and, uh, but it's more, on, more based on what you need to do. And, uh, and then usually there's no reading of the law in the, in the liturgy. The liturgy is, you know, um, very easygoing, um, you come into the place, there's not a real sense of God's holiness. Um, it's very casual. There's, you know, hip, cutting-edge music that the previous generation didn't know. Um, and the next generation won't know. It has a shelf life of about three years, max. And, uh, you know, and you sing, and it's super loud, so you can't hear yourself singing. How bad You, you don't realize how bad you sound until you come to a Reformed church. And... Uh, and because, and, you know, you're, you're being drowned out by the, um, by the sound system. And, uh, and that goes on, you know, for a while. And, uh, and then, the, you know, the, there might be a turn and greet your neighbor, or some announcements and message. Then after, you know, oh, isn't, aren't we being too hard on them? No, we're not, because it's a deviation from historic Christianity. It's, that's all it is. It's a deviation. It's, it, if you go back and you look at the liturgies, of the ancient church. Go back and look at any liturgy, any worship service 
from the first five centuries, and you'll find certain elements there. Communion every week, benediction, uh, creed, and reading of the law, and confession of sins, where we all confess our sins together. And see, but what's happened since the 1960s is we, we do what uh, C.S. Lewis called, calls chronological snobbery. We, we think that we're smarter and better than every generation that's come before us. And uh, we don't need to learn really much from the past. Uh, we're moving forward. And, uh, and that, so that's just a fact. I mean, th- this actually should be not only in the sermon, it should be located in the liturgy each week, that that is normal Christian worship going back to the patristics, back to the early fathers. And anything else is just a deviation, a modern aberration. There was a question over there. Right. Yeah, but see, I wouldn't call it good news because I've been to those and I don't hear good news. There's nothing good about it. Actually, what I hear is law light. And I, and I know this as a pastor over the, you know, the last decade, people come in here beat up. So they're in those you know, happy, clappy, kind of light and airy messages. But actually what they've been getting is not a diet of gospel, a diet of law. Because it's always... Okay, we're going to do 12 weeks on marriage. You always get the marriage series, right? And, uh, and basically, it's always be a better this, be a better that. be a be- That's law. That's not gospel. Now, they cloak it in law. That's why Kim calls it gospel, because they'll attach the name Jesus everywhere. But it's never about his person and work, how he's the faithful husband to his bride, the church. How he's, which is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 5, which is so ironic. And it's because of that that I'm humbled to now, I need to go be a good husband because of what Christ has done for his church. But that clear message of law gospel is often lost. Now, there are some, believe me, there are, some, there are some evangelical churches that are really trying to do this. You know, and there's groups out there, you know, like the Gospel Coalition and that, that have made some inroads into the evangelical movement. Um, it's not always successful, and it's still limping along, and you still don't get the law gospel in the liturgy. But I think in most cases, we really can't even call it good news. Because, uh, for example, is there an absolution at any point that you are right with God? No, you know, I mean, that's why you're here. That's how you ended up at a Reformed church. Because you came saying, I know for, for myself and for so many others, if there's no good news out there, if there's not something better, I'm done with the church. I'm done with Christianity because I can't fake it any longer. I'm tired of being the self-righteous Pharisee, and now I'm only going into despair. Um, that's when you're ready for law and gospel. So, yeah, Adrian. Exactly. Very good. Yeah, that's true. So there's a, you know, you could say uh, Jesus loves you. Okay, but what does that mean? And so now what you get is, uh, but first of all, the Jesus loves you part is usually given to non-believers. And this goes back to the thing I said at the beginning, that the gospel is often viewed as just, it's just a door to get you in. But the, the steady message each week isn't Jesus loves you, but is be like Jesus. You better be like Jesus. And, uh, but yeah, saying Jesus loves you, what, is that, what exactly does that mean? Right? And, and it doesn't mean anything. That's why I'm saying it's impossible to really bring the gospel apart from the law. Here's the funny thing, too. Um, 
you know the old saying, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Where do we find that in the Bible? Four spiritual laws, yeah. That's in the, the book of what? In the thir- third Hezekiah, yeah. Uh, right, I know. The four spiritual laws, right. We got this whole, we have all this stuff that we know that doesn't, it's not even from Scripture. Sinner's Prayer is another one. Here's the funny thing, though. It would actually, and I don't, I don't recommend you say this, but it would actually be more apostolic and more biblical and more in line with the kind of preaching you find in the book of Acts to say to people, no, apart from Jesus Christ, God hates you and has a terrible plan for you in the future. And, you know, and if we balk at that, well then, excuse me, what does Romans 5.1 mean when it says that through Jesus Christ we have peace with God? In other words, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no peace with God. His guns are pointed at us. And, and we have a culture that thinks, hey, it's okay for me to do what I want because Jesus loves me. And, and we don't even know what that means, you know, just that he's a nice cosmic deity there to help me if I need him. And uh, it's, you know, the moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, And so that's why I'm saying it's impossible to announce good news apart from the law. It's not only unbiblical, it's actually not possible. So it's not, you're really not getting the gospel by just saying Jesus loves you. It's actually, it's, it's kind of a false gospel. I mean, what does that mean? That's not the message that the apostles preached. There's, n- there's no sermon where they go up to people and say, Jesus loves you. The sermons they preach is, this Jesus of Nazareth has been, risen, been raised from the dead. He is the promised Messiah. And in him, we can have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Apart from him, there's no forgiveness of sins, no eternal life. So, Aaron and, and Yolanda. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, when we talk about the two parts of Scripture, that's really important. When we talk about the two parts of Scripture, we don't mean Old Testament, New Testament. We mean law and gospel. And there's actually gospel in the Old Testament, and there's law in the New Testament. So any command that you read in Scripture is essentially law. Any promise that you read And there's multiple promises in the Old Testament. A promise that I will do this for you. Not conditioned upon your obedience, but I will do this for you, is gospel. Let me give you a great gospel promise, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast of food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There's no law in that passage. There's no command. And it's only possible because Jesus was the one who fulfilled it. 
Or go back to, go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis. When, uh, where do we first find the gospel? 3.15. It's only law before that. Adam, if you do this, you will live. You'll have the right to eat of the tree of life. And he failed. Now he's a sinner. Now the law condemns him. And then the gospel comes. I'm going to separate seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent, and I'm going to send one to crush the serpent's head. That's a promise. It's not a command. It's a promise. Think about Abraham. Genesis 15. Well, first of all, Genesis 12. He's pulled out of Ur, of Chaldees, by a sovereign act of God's grace. And God says to him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a people and a land. Gospel promise. Genesis 15 makes his covenant with him. Animals are separated in this ancient Near Eastern treaty by which contracts and covenants were made. And instead of Abraham walking through it, he's the lesser party in the, between the two parties, Abraham and, and God. Actually, his name is Abram at the time. Instead of him walking through the severed halves as an act of, okay, if I don't do all the things that you've commanded of me, I'll become like these animals, God walks through the halves. I mean, that's, that's, that's like, that sets up the whole drama for the rest of the Bible. The, the fire and smoke God represented in this way walks through the severed animal halves saying, if I don't give you what I promise, a people, a land, an offspring, make you a blessing to the ends of the earth, I'll become like these severed animal halves. And he does it. That's the whole promise. Genesis, and Paul picks up on that in Romans. In Romans chapter 4, it's... It, Genesis says that Abraham believed, he received it by faith, and he was justified before God. And then Abraham, or Paul picks up on that and says, see how Abraham was justified, not by his works, but through faith in God's promise, who fulfilled the works for him. And that's precisely what Jesus Christ has come to do. So there is law in uh, the New Testament and Old, and there's gospel in the New Testament and Old. There's more gospel in the New and more law in the Old, naturally, because Christ has come, but we still find both of those. That's an important point to, to make. From dispensationalism. You got, it from, you got it from a system of theology that you were being fed. It's sort of like you know, chemicals put in your food that you didn't know about. And now you know about it, and it's like, wow, it's a good thing we have these regulations where you can put ingredients on. Yeah, well, you got dispensationalism. Yeah. And, uh, and a system of theology invented in the late 1800s and uh, propagated through the Schofield Study Bible and uh, popularized, you know, through all sorts of ways in the 20th century. And, uh, and, and that has divided up the, the, uh, the two testaments in that way. Yeah, Yolanda, first. Uh, well, I lived in West Ham. I always was fine. And my family is very Christian. Of course, they're dividing uh, in tongues. And I've been made. I've been happy. And then I heard that I don't do anything that's Christ after all. To me, it was like, whoa. No, I don't have, I, I don't have to open the door for Christ. Right. Right. <laughs> right, right. Hmm. Hmm. 
Right, right. He's raised us up to new life, right? Well, praise the Lord, Yolanda. You know, when, when you explain the gospel to somebody and they respond by saying, well, why do we bother doing good works then? I mean, what, what's, the, what, what's the whole point of that? Then you, then you know you've made the gospel clear. As uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if you preach the gospel clearly, or even just in, as late, if you share the gospel clearly, you will sound like an antinomian. Antinomian, anti, you know what that means. Nomian comes from the Greek word namas for law. You'll sound like you're saying, oh, well, the law is like, you know, pff, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to keep the law at all. You know, I just live however I want, do whatever I want. Well, no, we, we have new hearts now that desire to keep the law. We desire to love God and love neighbor. And that's why we feel bad about our sin, right? That's why we're convicted. The unbeliever doesn't have that struggle. The believer does. However, if you, if you preach the gospel clearly, that Christ has done it all for you. It's not your performance. It's his performance. You will sound like you're saying that, and they'll say, well, then what part do we play? What role do we play? You made the gospel clear to your mother, Yolanda, by the grace of God. And, well, no, the Lord used you. I don't, you, don't need, uh, you don't need me there. So, Angela, you have a question? Right, right. You preach the gospel too much, man, they're going to be dancing the Macarena on top of bar stools. So, yeah, you know who else said that? The Roman Catholic Church, the time of the Reformation. When, when Luther and Calvin and all that says are preaching justification by faith alone. So, you can't, you can't go out and say that stuff. And you know what they said? You know who else said that? <laughs> The, Paul's uh, opponents, the Jews said that to Paul. I mean, when, when you read Romans, for example, he preaches the gospel so clearly from, from chapters 3 to 5 that he gets to 6 and he says, well, what should we say to these things then? And he's asking a rhetorical question. My wife always hates it when I ask rhetorical questions. And I always say, but Paul did it. You know, he, did it, he does it all the time. And, uh, but it doesn't work so much in marriage. Uh, <laughs> But with, it, with uh, Paul, he says, what shall we say to these things then? It, uh, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? And he says, certainly not. In other words, you know, that's the question being raised. Well, then, I mean, can I just, I, what, you're, you're saying that I could just be a drunk and leave my wife and not worship? No, you have a new heart that wants to do those things now. You know, we're not going to continue in sin but I'm not made right with God through my own efforts. And I need to hear that good news each week because the truth is we often come into church feeling like a pretty sorry Christian. Feeling like, yeah, I've de- if I am a Christian, I'm definitely minor leagues. 
I'm definitely a bench warmer. Um, you know, if my brothers and sisters here could see a video clip of how I lost my temper this week or the stupid thing I said or what I was looking at or how I failed and the things I feel so bad about, I'm just here to, I'm here to confess my sin. Is there any good news for me? I want to worship the Lord and, and, the Lord, and Christ welcomes. He washes the feet again so that we continue to go. That's the good news. So I love hearing stories about how people flunked out of four-square Pentecostalism, you know, or whatever you've come out of, and how you backslid right into historic Christianity. <laughs> so, all right, we've got to pray and, and close. Father, we thank you for your word, we, for, for the time to study, and Lord, we pray that our hearts would be gripped by your gospel. Thank you for your holy law that reveals your holiness and shows us how we are to live. And may the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ So ignite our hearts, Lord, that we will joyfully show you our gratitude by obeying you in love. Thank you, Father, for your word. May we continue to grow in the knowledge of it. In Jesus' name, amen.